So boys and girls, we are so psyched to have you in here this morning. Now I have to let you know, uh, you heard Jordan say, but for the next six weeks leading up to Easter, moms and dads are going to be in here uh, working our way through the whole story of Luke. And that's all that's on the wall there. We'll cover several chapters each week, except not this morning. Now, if you ever hear the phrase, the gospel of Luke, that word gospel, boys and girls, that just means good news. It's the good news of Luke. Sometimes we'll refer to it as the gospel of Luke. Sometimes we'll refer to it as the biography that Luke wrote. It's not like a biography the way we read it today. The gospel writers used far fewer details, but still it is an account of Jesus' life, mostly his adult life. And boys and girls, you should know this, the only account that we have of Jesus' childhood is one story that comes from the time when he was about 12, and that story is in the Gospel of Luke. So after the service, see if you can go over and find it. Now I have to tell you, if you get a little bored today, uh, Miss Kristen has uh, put together some materials to uh, take you through kind of what we'll be talking about, although I have to say, uh, this morning I'm only going to talk about the first four verses, just the, the introduction. After this, we'll be going through several chapters. Ms. Kristen prepared stories for the first four chapters because I told her we were going to talk about the first four chapters, but we're going to blame that on Ms. Kristen. Can we all just agree to do that? Um, so welcome uh, and those of you who are watching us at home uh, either this morning or more likely later, welcome as well. You're going uh, to need a Bible with you in subsequent weeks as we're walking through this. All right, let me, let me I'm really excited about this. Let me, let me give you the mechanics of how we're going to do this. We're going to be focused on the text of the whole book of Luke through the next seven weeks. So I want you to bring your Bible each week during Lent. If you can't bring your Bible or if you forget or if you don't have one, we will have Bibles out here for you. Um, I want to give you two reasons why we're going to look at this whole text and, and why I want you to bring the Bible. First of all, the Bible wasn't written in isolated verses or paragraphs. And that's the way we display it when we show it on the screen every Sunday. The Bible was written as whole books. As we said two weeks ago, it's literally a library of books. And the best way to understand it is not thought by thought or verse by verse. The best way to understand each thought of the Bible is in its fuller context. That's why we usually talk about whole passages when we, when we talk about them here at Gateway. But it's even better to look at whole books at one time. Now, now, sometimes you might read an article or you might hear someone talk about a particular topic like uh, prayer or marriage or how to train your kids not to look at screens all day. And a speaker or a writer might pick 10 or 20 verses about that topic and, and write about them. And that's fine, but that's not the best way to read or study the Bible. The best way to study it is in its whole context. Look, whole books have an overall flow into which every single passage fits. So seeing the whole flow helps to add color to, to every passage, no matter what passage it is. Also, different authors might use the same words differently. If, if you're familiar with the New Testament, for example, you may know that, that the author late in the New Testament, James, 
He uses the word faith quite often, but he uses it differently than the Apostle Paul uses it, who also wrote a bunch of the New Testament. So if you read a passage from James about faith, you might think it contradicts what you just read from Paul, unless you read all of James and realize that what he means when he says faith is a little bit different than what Paul means when he says faith. So during the Lenten season, we'll be looking at the whole book of Luke. And and I want us to see every passage in its immediate context, meaning how it brushes up against instances on either side of it, as well as seeing it within the whole book. And bringing our physical Bibles helps us to put all that together. Let me give you a second reason for all of this. Uh, This is a more personal reason for taking this approach, so thank you for indulging me. Pastors are sinners too. I know those of you are part of Gateway, that's a shock to you. But, uh, and like all sinners, we tend to think about and therefore talk about the things that we like. And we avoid what we don't like. Listen to this. In Acts 20, 26, Paul told uh, the group of Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus, He said to them, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink, listen to this, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Well, we will not be able to say that to one another if we spend all of our time talking about our pet peeves. And I'll not be able to say that to you at the end of my time at Gateway if I spend all of my time talking about my pet peeves. And one of the best ways to satisfy this is to talk through the whole Bible and whole books of the Bible. So we'll be walking through the whole text of Luke, and that means I'll be covering several chapters each week to get to the end of the story. Now, I've never done this before, preached big sections like that, so we'll be experimenting together. Along with this, obviously, we're displaying the text on the wall, and you'll be invited to interact with that text each week after this. Before the services and during the services and after the services, we will literally go over and interact with the text. So let's have some fun and let's learn some stuff. For those of you who are watching at home, I'm going to expect all during these weeks that you will display a giant poster in your home of the entire text of Luke. Okay, in our our time together, I want to do a couple of things today. At the end today, I want us to kick off our, our whole Lenten journey together. So I'm going to talk about some of what I, I think we can do together as a, as a community to walk through Lent. Uh, but uh, to start out with, I, I want to begin by looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just the introductory paragraph. And we'll talk about why Luke wrote this book and why his purpose is such an important one. Uh, now, just for today, I'm going to put the passage on the screen. I, it won't be on the screen after this. Um, but today it will be. After this, we're just looking at our Bibles. By the way, side note, as you you walk through Luke, once in a while, uh, we will make reference to the book of Acts. And if you know the New Testament, that's just two books over from Luke. We're doing that because Luke was the author of both of those books. They were originally written as volume one and volume two of Luke's account. Volume one, Luke, is the story of Jesus. Volume 2, the book of Acts, is the story of the early Christian movement, the early church. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, let's stand together out of reverence for God's Word. Let's go old school. Luke 1, 1 through 4, and I'm reading from the New International Version. If you're reading from the King James, or the New King James, or the English Standard Version, we'll talk about versions in coming weeks. All that, all that is good. You'll find essentially the same thing. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And we'll talk about who that is. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Father, I pray that you'll open up our hearts and our chests and our minds this morning and speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So who is the audience for this book? Well, as you can see, it was addressed to Theophilus. Now, some have argued that Theophilus is not an individual person, but really a symbol for all Christians. And uh, in fact, the name Theophilus is a compound name, Theos and Philos, which means essentially friend of God. But the evidence is against this. The, the decisive argument against this uh, might be that he's called most excellent Theophilus. And, and this title is used three other times by Luke, by this same author. In Acts 23, 26, and 24, uh, 3, he refers to most excellent Felix. And Felix was the governor of Judea at the time. And then in Acts 26, 25, he refers to the most excellent Festus, and Festus was Felix's successor. So it seems pretty clear that most excellent Theophilus was a, was a Gentile. That means someone who was not from Jewish birth. He was a Gentile who probably held some important office in the Roman government. But this book was probably not for Theophilus alone. Uh, we have to assume that Luke believed that Theophilus would share this book with, with friends and Christians that he lived around. And of course, the Holy Spirit knew that Theophilus would eventually share this book with us. So the book of Luke was written for Gateway, essentially. Why did Luke write this book? Now, this is pretty clear. Sometimes this question is tricky with books of the Bible, but it's not with Luke. He told us very plainly in verse 4. Look at this. He wanted Theophilus and us to know with certainty the things that we have been taught. He wanted Theophilus and us to move beyond insecurity and beyond doubt even to a place of certainty about the substance of our faith, specifically about the story of Jesus. And that's important because, because when we latch onto the story of Jesus with faith, everything is changed. Now, you're going to hear me say that many times over the next seven weeks. We are not having this discussion so that we can increase our knowledge. We're not, we're not gathering information here about ancient writings or about the book of Luke or, or about even the life of Jesus. We're gaining confidence because this story is profound, and if it's true, everything is different, everything is changed. I was talking yesterday on the phone with someone who's not a believer, and uh, this is someone, he said he wanted to uh, uh, talk to a pastor because he had some questions. This is a great young man. And uh, at one point, he asked me a couple of questions. Adam and Eve, what do you think of Adam and Eve? He asked me another question from one of the stories of the Old Testament. I, I gave him a really quick answer, and I said, look, here's the thing you need to understand. Uh, Christianity, I, what we believe, our faith, and if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. Our faith doesn't depend on whether or not Jonah was swallowed by a whale. 
Our faith doesn't depend on whether or not there was a real Adam and Eve. Our faith rises and falls based on an historical fact. Not based on moral teaching, not based on how we feel, not based on our, our sense of spirituality. Our faith rises and falls. It is true or it is not true based on an historical fact. Now that fact may be false. And if it is, I'm deluded. And you guys are a little unwise to be listening to you. But it is based on an historical event the resurrection of a dead guy. There was a guy who claimed to be the son of God. He did things that were utterly spectacular and they killed him. And they were experts at murder. And three days later, he walked out of the grave and did not stink. And our faith is true or it is not true based entirely on that. And that's what we're going to be moving toward over these next seven weeks. Two questions should be asked about the purpose that Luke presents for us here. Number one, is it even important to persuade people of the truth of Christianity? Is that an important thing? Number two, if, if it is, how can it be done? All right. The answer to this first question is, Yes, it's important to try to persuade people that Christianity is true. At least, at least Luke thinks it is. It's important to ask this question because there are many today who conceive of the Christian faith as something sentimental, something akin to emotions. They'll talk at length about spirituality. Now, that's not a bad word. We use that word here at Gateway. But it's not, it's not what's at the heart of what we believe. Our faith is not sentimentality or, or vague spirituality. We believe because of a series of remarkable events that either happened or they did not happen. Or some will talk about the Christian faith. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Some will talk about the Christian faith as if it's a, a leap into the dark, uh, an arbitrary decision to embrace something for, for which they just don't see any reasonable explanation. They may even talk about the Holy Spirit in this regard. If, if we ask them why they believe, they might say, well, the Holy Spirit just witnesses to me that it's true. But this is not the way Luke understood the faith. Our faith is not a vague movement of the Spirit. Notice Luke was not, Luke was not content with the evidence that Theophilus already had. Uh, Luke does not merely pray for God to tell Theophilus that it's all true. He undertook a very heavy intellectual task. If you add Luke and Acts together, he wrote 52 chapters to Theophilus. And all for the sake of making clear to Theophilus the specifics of Jesus' story and the truth of it. Let me add to that. If you, if you went ahead and read the book of Acts, you'll find in Acts 17, 11, just one little reference, that Luke praises a group of Christians in the ancient city of Berea for what he calls testing the apostles' teaching to see if they're true. Listen to this. I'm going to read one, that one verse. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It seems clear to me that Luke was eager to encourage something more than sentimentalism and maybe just the opposite of a blind leap of faith. Let me add one more thing. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and I told you we were going to look at Acts 
occasionally, once in a while. Luke says this, listen to this. To the apostles, Christ presented himself alive after his passion. That means after his death and resurrection. By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. Evidently, Jesus was very concerned to give proof of the actuality of what had happened to him and of what it meant. Jesus didn't want to encourage a blind leap of faith, nor was this simply sentimentality. Clearly, Luke thought it was very important to try to persuade people of the truth of Christianity, and it seems that Jesus thought the same thing. Now, this doesn't rule out the Holy Spirit. Of course, without his work, no one would ever come to the truth of the gospel. And, and as we said a couple of weeks ago, our faith does require us to move beyond reason, but it, it's not without reason. And all of this doesn't mean that we should, doesn't mean that we should not, all of this does mean that we should pursue the actual, real life truth of these stories, and we should encourage that in others. Uh, look, if you struggle with doubts about whether or not this stuff is true, uh, don't feel guilty about that, but don't settle. We work through your doubts and come to some conclusions, even if that means that you don't arrive at faith. After all, God is not after consolation faith or, or just-in-case faith. As we'll learn through Luke, he wants all-in faith, heart, will, and mind. So it is critical that we be persuaded of the truth and that we do the work of persuading others. Parents, it's critical that we do the work of persuading our children of the truth of this story. Not just that it's good for your life. It's true. Well, how? Of course, we can't fully answer that, but we get some clues from what Luke does here. The other question is, how can it be done? What will persuade a, person, a reasonable person that Christianity is true? It seems to me that there are two basic ways we come to be convinced of something. One is to see it and hear it for ourselves. The other is that we have an eyewitness tell us about it if we were not there. In the second case, our certainty about the event depends on our estimation of the reliability of the witness and whether or not the message fits with reality as we know it and you know, explains our life. Next slide, Mike. Yes. Uh, now, neither Theophilus nor any of us nor Luke ever saw or touched or heard Jesus. We did not see the risen Christ or any of his miracles. We did not hear his remarkable teaching from his own mouth. Luke knows that all the knowledge that Theophilus has of Christ, and in all likelihood, all that he'll ever have, is secondary through witnesses. So if Theophilus or any of us is to be persuaded that Christianity is true, we must be convinced of the reliability of the witnesses, and just as important, perhaps more important, we have to see that this claim, the, the, the truth claim here, fits in with and helps make sense of, of our, our lives, our reality, reality as we experience it. I believe that Luke wants to provide Theophilus with both of those assurances. He wants to convince Theophilus of the reliability of his own narrative and that his account makes sense of Theophilus' life. Now, look, that second one, that, that uh, Luke's account makes sense of our lives and, and helps it fit together. Uh, if you, we, can't, we can't do that in one week, and he can't do that in the, in the introduction. 
that we're going we're gonna to unpack that through the rest of this account. But if you think about it, that's what science is really all about. How does this theory fit with reality? Does it make sense of the world? Let's test it. That's part of how we know something is true. Again, that process can't be given in just this introduction. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that through this whole narrative as we watch Jesus' life and teachings play out. That's what's going to be fun to uncover over these next several weeks. But that, that other, that other means of persuasion, na- namely the reliability of his account, that he can and does demonstrate right here at the beginning in the introduction because he knows that if Theophilus is going to listen to him, Theophilus has got to trust him as a witness. Specifically, Luke tries to build up Theophilus' confidence in this whole account by pointing to three important facts, and we'll end with this. Look at verse 3. Luke says that his account is based on thorough and careful research. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke claims that, and and he claims that he has carefully investigated, meaning that he, he he he, he hasn't included anything in this account that he hasn't traced back to a reliable source. His work has not been careless, but it's been painstaking because the stakes are so high of this message. Did this stuff really happen or didn't it? That's a big deal. So he has carefully investigated everything and then he adds, from the beginning. In other words, he hasn't been hasty. He's been patient. He's traced it back to the beginning of Jesus' story. I think that's one of the reasons why Luke gives the longest account of Jesus' birth. And he's been thorough. And that's the first thing that gives his story integrity. But no matter how careful one is with their research, the narrative can only be as good as the sources, right? So Luke stresses the number and the quality of his sources of information. There are many sources of information, he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, in all likelihood, One of the written sources that Luke uses when he's writing out his story is actually the Gospel of Mark that we have for us in our New Testament. We'll see more about Luke's sources as we go through the story. But I especially want you to see that this verse, look again, that first verse, I want you to see that this guards us against two errors in our thinking. It guards against two things that we sometimes assume that are wrong. Uh, One error is thinking that each of the writers got his narrative directly from God by dictation. Luke shows clearly that he wrote his gospel on the basis of sources and research. In other words, God chose Luke and guided him in his research and in his writing so that it would all be true and powerful, but God did not dictate the account. God used Luke's personality and his training. The other error that this verse guards against is the claim that Until the writing of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' teachings and his deeds were only passed down orally. If, as Luke says, many had earlier written down accounts of Jesus' saying and deeds, then, then there's no reason to think that people hadn't done it from the very beginning, right after Jesus' resurrection. So, Luke wants to stress the number of his sources. There are many, and he wants to, to stress the quality of them, They're they're written down from the beginning, but beyond that, further stress on the quality, his sources included written sources dated back to shortly after Jesus' death, but also look at verse 2. These narratives follow what the eyewitnesses have reported, he says. 
And notice that Luke includes himself among those who receive the reports directly from the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They handed it down to us, he said. So not only are there many sources which can, be corrupt, which can corroborate one another, but even better, he has had direct access to the eyewitnesses themselves to confirm anything that he has read or heard from other sources. These eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, let's be clear, he is referring to the apostles. The actual first followers of Jesus were among Luke's conversations. We can see this from the way Luke describes the work of the apostles in the book of Acts. I'm not going to go through a lot of this. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. For example, in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles had appointed a group of people to serve the whole community. And then Peter says of himself and the other apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Same phrase that's used right here. They are also referred to many times throughout the book of Acts as witnesses, and that in a technical sense. Same word as you, Luke uses here. So the eyewitnesses and servants of the word with whom Luke could confirm his work were not just ordinary eyewitnesses. They were the chosen and appointed instruments of Christ himself. They had lived with him as his mentees, and he had given, him their author he had given them his authority. They were the apostles. Let's review what Luke has introduced to us here. It's important to be persuaded and to persuade other people of the truth of Christian claims. This is not sentimentalism or emotionalism. This is factual and actual. And Dr. Luke aims to demonstrate this through the whole gospel. The way this could happen for the Theophilus and for us first is to see that he is a witness and that he can be relied on. And second, to see in the teaching and life of this Jesus a reality that helps make sense of our experience and that fills our deepest longings. This is what I found in my personal faith journey with Jesus over many years, and I'm excited about inviting him into our services for these next several weeks. All right, we had to get through some of that introductory material. A little bit dry, I know. We'll liven it up in coming weeks as we actually get into the story. I just wanted you to hear the, basic, the, the basics of this and the basics of our faith. Uh, before we end this morning, I'll be quick, but uh, I want to introduce us to our Lenten season together. So this is the first Sunday of Lent, and we, uh, we typically do uh, Lent at Gateway together. For those of you who have never uh, done Lent as a, a congregation before, we're not talking about uh, that stuff that gathers in your navel. We're talking about a season of the year that people set aside specifically to uh, pursue God in, in a more determined way, in a more focused way. So I want to give three recommendations for all of us as a congregation, as a part of our Lenten pursuit together. And I want to encourage you to talk about it with one another in our small groups, at home with one another if you have a partner, or with uh, just your posse. Um, three practices that I want to encourage us to participate in, and you're going to hear more about these, especially over the first couple, our first couple of weeks together. Practice number one, I want to encourage a reading practice. And for the reading practice, I want to suggest that we read the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, you'll find, Gina, how, where is this? It's, uh, yes, thank you, Miss Gina. On your, on your bookmark, 
there is a QR code on the back that will take you to a reading guide for this week, if it would be helpful. I've, I've given a reading guide that will take you through the chapters of Luke that we're going to cover the next Sunday. There'll be just a couple of questions to guide, you know, general questions to get you thinking. I also have added in lots of study notes, almost like a study Bible, maybe even a little bit more, to add some clarity and some fullness to uh, some of the weirder things that you stumble into and uh, some explanations. So each week, uh, you'll be given a reading assignment that if you follow it, you will have read and hopefully have a little bit of an understanding of the chapters that we'll be covering here on Sunday morning. But I'm going to recommend a reading practice, and I recommend that we read through the book of Luke together. Secondly, I'm recommending a fasting practice. If you've, if you've done Lent before, this may be what you think of as Lent. Um, it would be best, in my opinion, if this is combined with an effort to accomplish the reading practice. So by that I mean, you know, maybe for the season of Lent, uh, you give up eating breakfast if you're a breakfast eater so that you can spend that time reading Luke. Or maybe you give up eating lunch. Uh, if you're a lunch eater, so that you could spend that time reading Luke. But it, it doesn't matter. Any, any kind of uh, fasting practice to just help you focus, to simplify. Some of us fast from television. Some of us fast from screens. Some of us fast uh, one day a week from social media. Some of us fast the Holy Week, the last week from social media or from all screens. Find a, a, a rhythm, find something that will help you focus on God. And remember, I quoted Crystal uh, on Wednesday night. Crystal said to us last week in staff meeting, fasting uh, without prayer is just hunger. So if you're going to pick some kind of fast, make sure that you do so not for the purpose of fasting, but do so for the purpose of creating space so you can fill it up with God. Um, this isn't some kind of rule. This is not for the purposes of being more religious. This is an attempt to facilitate focus and to create space for God. All right, the final practice is an odd one, so stay with me. I want to recommend a boredom practice. I have read several articles recently. I don't know if you've stumbled into any of this, but there's, there's new research on how important it is for us socially and intellectually to be bored. We're never bored anymore. We, we are so easily entertained or we, we carry entertainment and productivity around with us constantly, 24-7. And there's increasing research that boredom is actually good for us. So I want to recommend that you find some rhythm, some time, an hour each week where, or uh, a day during uh, the Lenten season where you are bored and encourage your children to do the same. You have my permission. Sorry, boys and girls, if you come to your parents and say, I'm bored, they are to say to you, awesome, that's the goal. So just stay bored. Uh, find, find some kind of boredom rhythm, some kind of boredom practice, and lean into it. You can go for a walk, but don't do it to be productive. Don't do it for exercise. Just do it to be bored. Find some time to be bored. I talked about this on Wednesday night, and I got an email from someone you might appreciate. They said, I, you know, I enjoy Ash Wednesday service, uh, the emphasis on Lent, new to me before coming to Gateways. With that being said, 
He said, I've been in a certain profession for many, many years, so I've really been leaning into this boredom challenge for my entire working career, and I probably need to do some more work on the reading and fasting part. So some of you already have a very healthy boredom practice in your life, uh, but I, make, it, make it, can you say this about boredom? Make it productive. Make it chosen. Reading practice, a fasting practice, and a boredom practice. All God's people said, Okay, we're going to repeat that. I'm going to say the practice, and you're going to say it after me, just to make sure we lean into it. A reading practice. A reading practice. Yeah. Uh, a fasting practice. fasting practice. And a boredom practice. <laughs> you sounded a little bored. All right. Uh, welcome to our Lenten series. Look at this. We're really glad to have you. Let me end us in prayer. Father, thanks so much for the invitation to join you here today. We don't believe any of us are here by accident. Uh, we believe that you wanted us to hear about um, I, whatever. Uh, for many of us, Lord, it's just a reminder of the importance of being convinced of the truth of this. Lord, I also pray for our upcoming weeks that you will enliven uh, the story of Luke, the story of the life of Jesus, that you'll bring Jesus to life for us. Thanks so much for this invitation, and thanks for how freely we can read and share your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>